this industry is always trying to accelerate right the developments mm-hmm. that we're seeing in solar mm-hmm. and now module manufacturers can feasibly go to market with a 30% efficient panel but if we're thinking about utility scale now we can generate 30% more power in the same amount of space Welcome to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground, where we talk about supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity with everyone from academics, historians, and business leaders. With your hosts, Chloe Guidry-Reed and Adam Moore, you'll hear inspiring stories and practical tips for overcoming challenges and gaining insight into supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. I'm Adam Moore, and in this episode, we're spotlighting the exciting intersection of cutting-edge energy innovation and economic inclusion. I'm joined today by Leslie Chang from K-Lux Corporation, a California-based startup pioneering the next generation of solar technology. But what sets K-Lux apart is not just a revolutionary technology but their unwavering commitment to inclusive workforce development and economic equity. As their director of strategy and policy, Leslie is implementing that vision in her work is a testament to how energy startups can be catalysts for change in their communities and even beyond. Leslie, we are so eager to dive into this conversation. Welcome to show. So glad to have you join us today. Thank you, Adam. It is such a pleasure to be here as well. Awesome. So to start off with, can you share a little bit of the path that kind of led you to your current role in K-Lux? It's always kind of interesting to hear how we we wind up where we are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was Steve Jobs who might have said in one of his commencement speeches that Mm -hmm. you can really only connect the dots in your life and in your career path looking backwards. And I find that's really been the case for me as well. So I've always wanted to work in climate change. I've always been passionate about sustainability. And I started my career actually in grad school. So I studied economic history and that was really looking at the development of the working class in England. So as England was commercializing, as its economy was growing, what was needed on the ground to really build up that middle class to facilitate that transition? And what I found was really education. Education needed to shift Mm -hmm. from the kind of studying Latin and the arts, right? What was previously for the elites down to really just like working class, double entry accounting, right? Arithmetic, more Mm -hmm. basic skills that could then facilitate that trade. And so I took that knowledge thinking about institutions and organizations, and I went into consulting. So I worked within global health and global development. So that was thinking about uh, working with foundations such as the Gates Foundation to help them set up their portfolio strategies. So what is their overarching strategy around climate change or maternal and family health or digital financial inclusion, and then helping them think through what their strategy was over the next three to five years, as well as how to allocate their dollars. And then I also worked with grantees in the field who were receiving those dollars. So I really saw that end-to-end connection of 
how does philanthropy work in this space? How does it catalyze change? And what's needed on the ground in order to kind of facilitate that change that they wanted to see? So I have this background that's really rooted in thinking about systems design, right? Systems thinking and having that experience working on the field. And I've worked in Kenya, I've worked in China, I've worked in Tanzania, really embedded in me the importance of working within local ecosystems. And that really takes me to Calix right now, where we're working on solar technology, but what good is this technology if you don't have the people on the ground who are actually going to build it, right? Mm -hmm. So are local conditions set up to be able to support all of these technological advancements that we want to be driving? And it's certainly in the case that the United States has been this big manufacturing hub for quite some time. But with globalization, we've seen a lot of that go offshore. So now this is a muscle that we really have to build again. Mm -hmm. And the question becomes, what is the role of the private sector and the government and local communities in working together to facilitate again that shift so that we can build this muscle again and once again become this powerhouse and this really thriving economic economically driven country that is very focused on the middle and working class. So I feel very lucky Mm. to be working on this at this company while also pushing forward all of these innovative changes that we want to be seeing within the renewable energy sector. Wow, that's amazing. So you're doing a lot of different things, right? So you're like a one woman ESG CSR shop, right? Because this is the type of things that we're trying to figure out in corporate America. But that is absolutely amazing. And then I like how you correlated that, the ability to see a program from start to finish, right? From mm-hmm. the, 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 mon- the fundraising stage straight through to how does that actually impact the folks, the sectors, the cultures that we're trying to, to help? Mm-hmm. That, is, that is awesome. That is really awesome. But tell us a little bit more about Kalux. And, and, and the company evolved from an R&D at Caltech to where you guys are now and you're trying to take some unique approaches to revolutionize solar energy. And I think I know for myself and probably for a majority of our listeners, to us, the idea of solar energy is strapping some panels to my roof, maybe some municipalities have put some huge panel farms out in the middle of nowhere, right? So yeah. talk, talk to us a little, educate us on, on this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think solar is probably the most well-known of all of the different renewable energy verticals. Sure. It's been around for such a long time, and you see it every day, right? It's it's right. not every day you might see offshore wind, but it's likely that most people have either seen solar panels out in the desert or on their neighbor's roofs, or maybe you, maybe some people might have solar experience with solar themselves. Right. And if you think about the construction of a solar panel in a very productive manner, it's it's that you have that top glass, then you have the actual solar cell, which for the most part is crystalline silicon, and you've got the bottom cell, and that's the stack that you have. I like to call it a sandwich, right? So you've got white bread on top, okay. you've got peanut butter in the middle, and then you've got white bread on the bottom. And, okay. and so you need the white bread for structural integrity, But the peanut butter, if you're eating the sandwich, is really the only thing that's providing your body with energy. Sure, sure. What 
we are developing at Kalux is a proprietary nanomaterial technology called perovskites. It's a liquid, right? We make it out of chemicals, readily sourced in the United States, which is very different from sourcing crystalline silicon because most of that actually comes from China. So oh, fascinating. All of our inputs are more easily found. It's very cheap to make. And what we do is we coat the underside of that top glass to turn it into a second solar cell. So now we're turning that piece of white bread on top into Ezekiel seeded bread. And it's the same stuff. You still have, and we're in California, right? So this is the kind of woo-woo stuff we like. I was about to say, I, I definitely see the parallel in the story, but it's making a lot of sense. I'm loving this. (laughs) I guess. So we take that top piece of white bread, we turn it into super bread, and then you connect it all all the same in that state. It's same structural integrity. So you still have a sandwich, but now you have two components that are giving you nutrition. And so out in the fields now, that's two cells that are generating power. So our value proposition is that we are generating more power for solar for a lower installed cost per watt. Any module going Mm. out, and module is what we call solar panels in the industry. So any solar panel, any solar module going out into the field or onto the rooftop, generally onto the market, can now see a 30% increase in its overall power production. So if you were to have a 20, like, 16 to 17% module. Now you can have something that's lower 20s. Or if you have like a 25, 26% module, now you have a high 20s, almost 30% module. And that's very exciting because I think this industry is always trying to accelerate, right? The developments Mm -hmm. that we're seeing in solar. Mm -hmm. And now module manufacturers can feasibly go to market with a 30% efficient panel. But if we're thinking about utility scale now, we can generate 30% more power in the same amount of space. Or okay, let's say, right. let's say a, a homeowner right now has to install fewer solar panels on their house in order to generate the same amount they would otherwise have they would otherwise get by getting like two or three more panels. Mm-hmm. And so part of our value proposition is also thinking through this entire value chain where we're making money. Module manufacturers are making money because they can sell their product for more. Mm-hmm. Uh, project developers can now generate more power within the same amount of land they otherwise would have had to set aside for development. Mm-hmm. Homeowners are paying less for what's on their house because they're paying for one, fewer panels, and also two, fewer installation hours, right? The installer uh-huh. working on their house works fewer hours now, and then that installer can go work on more houses in a day. Wow. And then the other thing I I just thought about, too, is when you're looking at structures, right, I would imagine then by just adding your coating to the top glass reduces overall weight of the installation, which has got to help in a lot of different instances. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very lightweight solution. It's something that it's it's thin film solar. So we can actually we can apply it on mylar, which we've done that within. Oh, wow. Yeah, within our R&D lab. And it's something that what's really exciting for me, I think, is that it's really industry agnostic. So we've been talking about terrestrial PV, but we could coat the outside of buildings 
right? We can coat the top of Tesla moon roofs. We can we can create lightweight satellites or put them on rockets right. or right. space shuttles. So the applications for perovskites are really endless. And I think that's really that like forward-looking excitement that people are getting really excited about. Yeah, I mean... You just let your imagination run wild for about five minutes and the amount of like different solutions you can think of is is mind-boggling that is really some cool stuff you guys have got going up but one of the other things that you guys are doing is cool other than saving the world through solar paint as i'm going to call it for a tech startup like klux you also have a strong focus on on what we call on the show and in and kind of in our spheres inclusive economic development Right. Mm-hmm. And, and for our listeners who are entrepreneurs, and again, our show, we talk to a bunch of different segments out there. And especially in the emerging market sector. And, and sometimes I think those folks feel like they're a little bit on an island. How does how, how is Kalux accomplishing this? How are you guys doing economic development along with this cutting edge solar tech? Yeah, that's a great question because I think it's something that the renewable energy industry is really grappling with mm-hmm. right now. So I, I've mm-hmm. been very fortunate because I come from this background, right? That right. where I focus, I have focused on development and I have thought about the the levers needed for economic development. When we talk about workforce development at Kalux, yeah. it's really a proxy for workforce development, economic development, DEI, ESG. Mm-hmm. That's that's everything that you see within our factory onwards is about creating an environment in which people, no matter what their education background, can come here and really build a life for themselves, which has nice. not been the case in the United States for a very long time. Very true. So when we're thinking about bringing people into Kalux, there's a couple of components that we're thinking about. One is, are they local? Are we mm-hmm. pulling people in from the community? Does this company look like the community mm-hmm. that it's in instead of us parachuting in and then trying to hire people from all over and then having to relocate them, right? Which doesn't mm-hmm. really help the local city at all. No. How are we making sure that people in this area, as young as high school, know that there is a path for them into this company? Then once people are in the company, it's thinking about how we're training them so that they see that this is a viable career path. And something I like to say, in addition to facilitating upwards mobility for folks in the mm-hmm. company, I also like to facilitate diagonal, diagonal mobility. And what that means is, let's okay. say someone in and they work as a lab technician for a couple of months and they they get very good at the kind of chemistry side of things. And then they say, I'm actually really interested in the engineering side, working on the tools, or I think maybe I'm interested in exploring the admin side. How do we help them stay within the company, but then shift roles so that we're not letting people go and bringing someone new in, but rather really making sure that we're taking care of our people. That's really one, that's really kind of a a big piece of what we're solving for right now. And then the upstream side of this is thinking about who our suppliers are, like who are our supply chain partners? Are we buying from local companies or are you buying from domestic suppliers or are we just trying to import cheap things from China, which mm-hmm. with the passage of things like the Inflation Reduction Act and Infrastructure Jobs Act is something that the United States as a whole is really trying to move away from. 
So there's really these two main pieces that we're trying to solve for. And at the end of the day, it just makes good business sense for us. Right. I know not all companies see it that way, but there is kind of like the triple bottom line that we're solving for here, right? People, planet, and profit. It is totally achievable. Right. But I think a lot of companies are stuck in the mentality of, if I do DEI, it's just, I, I check the box. I hire a chief diversity officer, right? And then that's it. It's not really baked into the culture. We're trying to really bake it into the culture. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So, wow, that's a lot. So let's let's try to unpack all of that in just in, in some bite-sized chunks because that is amazing what you guys are doing over there. So the very first thing I'm hearing from you guys is, and we talk a lot about this sh- on the show, and that is economic impact, mm-hmm. right? You're hiring local. So you're bringing people in from the communities that you want. You want your you want your workforce to reflect the community that you work in, right? Mm-hmm. And I hear it all the time, right? That's corporate speak of we want to work. We want to aid the communities. We want to build up the communities in which we work in. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually kind of putting your your statement to work, literally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, intentional hiring of the people around you in the community. And then that then adds dollars back into that community when they go shopping, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they spend the the their salary in their own mm-hmm. community. And then the ripple effects from that. I mean, that's got to, that is an entire vitalization effort in and of itself. I mean, do you guys look at some of that, measure it? I mean, I know you guys understand that's what's going on, but I just think that's such a, a great part of your story. Are you guys looking at some of those economic impacts that you're making in the community around you? That's a really good question. Right now, because we're just starting up our production facilities, we're only tracking who's coming in and how we're retaining uh, workers down the line. That is something we want to work with our partners on. So we have a number of uh, workforce development partners in the community that's like schools, county agencies, employment agencies, the VA, et cetera. So we're starting to think a little bit more critically about how to track these metrics. So Mm -hmm. it's an ongoing conversation, but -hmm. certainly that aspect of monitoring and evaluation is very important to us. That's just awesome. And then the next thing I hear from you is like, we're, we're willing to work with our employees about exploring other interests they might have. Right. Which mm-hmm. is absolutely phenomenal because all too often, maybe you get a job. If we follow the typical career path, right, go to college, get a job. And then that very first job can almost define you for the next 20 years of your life. Right. Because you start gaining some expertise in there. But you guys aren't afraid to do that. Then my mind starts to think about, well, this is also just not solving because a lot of times our government just starts handing out money, which I don't think any of us are going to balk at that, but (laughs) yeah, but it doesn't really address the root issue of generational wealth gaps, Mm -hmm. right? It's a very short term fix to a long term symptom, but you hiring from the community, bringing people in, moving them through your company as they show interest and ability that really helps move the needle on generational wealth gaps. And mm-hmm. that's an amazing thing, right? Because that is definitely an issue that we have to to concentrate on. What are you, are you guys, you, I, you're probably not tracking. That one's kind of harder to track. But the intentionality that I'm hearing from you, I mean, is this some of the things you guys think of? 
when you're doing all of this, kind of work through some of that with us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it really starts with thinking about the like the the compensation package that we're giving our employees, like mm-hmm. making sure we're covering medical, dental, vision, right? People get paid time off. People get equity in the company, which is absolutely part of closing that generational gap, right? Not only mm-hmm. are they workers at this company, but they actually own a part of it. And this is something that they'll carry with them, even if they decide to leave the company, right? Yeah, We're very supportive right. of helping people move through and also exit the company should they want to go and explore something new. We want to make sure people understand all the skills that they've earned here right. so that they're transfer- transferable to whatever they're working on next. Right. And we've also been very focused on there have been some people who have been relocating. So we've been focused on helping people and their families get visas as well. Oh, just making nice. sure that yeah, just making yeah. sure that we're really thinking about what it takes to actually build a family here. Mm-hmm. So again, ongoing monitoring and evaluation. But when we sit down and think about how we're compensating people, it really is with the mentality of is this a living wage? Is this a living wage for nice. a fam- for, right. for someone with a family? Right. And that's so important, right? Because I think sometimes people get too locked into, nope, this is this is your job grade and here's the salary band. Right. Whether exactly. or not that makes sense for that person, that employee. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's such a archaic way of doing things. I mean, honestly, yes, I love hearing that you guys actually take into consideration, well, what is a living wage, right? And what mm-hmm. is a living wage for where we're doing business? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's absolutely amazing. But kind of thinking about that. Right. And and this this intentionality around your hiring, which is just coming through loud and clear for all of us. You guys have several third party or relationships, right, with the local stakeholders like the NAACP and the Pasadena Unified School District. Talk to us a little bit about the the hiring of people from the community. Cause a lot of times the straw man argument that's put up is, yeah, I'd love to hire from the community, but the community that we're in doesn't provide the appropriate candidates for the jobs. Right. And you guys are in mm-hmm. science, not just like mm-hmm. little science. This is like hardcore science. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to have capable individuals, right. To do the different jobs. Talk to us a little bit about that. Cause I would love for you to break down that wall of thought? That is a really great question. So I will preface my answer by saying we are very lucky to be within the boundaries of Los Angeles County. We're not in LA Mm. City, but we are still in LA County. Gotcha. And LA in particular has this really rich background of Mm. defense and aerospace manufacturing. So there are Uh, a lot of people who have had exposure to this before. Mm. Nonetheless, We are working on very hard technical science here, but the basics of working within a factory, being an operator, is Mm -hmm. fairly transferable skills. We've had a lot of people come in who don't have direct solar experience, but might have experience working on like automotives. And so what we're doing when we're working with our workforce development partners is thinking really about how are we getting the message to people? That's really the thing Mm -hmm. that we've had to solve for because it's not about finding quality slash qualified candidates for us, but it's about getting this message out 
to more non-traditional fields, right? If you are only out coming out of high school or if you just have an AA degree right. or maybe you just went to trade tax, you're not looking on LinkedIn for job descriptions or maybe you mm. don't have a resume or you don't know how to write a cover letter. Mm -hmm. So our approach has been through word of mouth, through doing presentations, through just talking with people and bringing them into the company to do open houses so that they know and they can see for themselves what we're doing here. And then oh. when we when we do our interviews, it's not about, okay, what skills do you have? How many years of work experience do we have? But we're really trying to screen for, is this person dedicated, interested, and mm -hmm. going to be a hard worker? Are they curious about learning? Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, we've had so many people come in here who've had very minimal experience in solar, but be able to ramp up to become a full-time employee and become very good at their jobs because we gotcha. were screaming not for those technical skills, but for more of those soft skills. And this is really, I mean, it requires going out into the community and working with organizations on a case-by-case -case basis, right? There's no sure. like one size fits all. It's right. really just about that aspect of, community relations so yeah. for us again we're very lucky to be in la because i think it is a place where a lot of people are used to working in factories but it's we've had we've been solving for that aspect of how to bring people in as we expand i imagine the conversation will shift right as we expand mm -hmm. whether that's going to be staying in california or maybe going to a different state mm -hmm. that conversation will change quite a bit and then so that's when we're going to have to take all of our learnings here, including all of the metrics we've been tracking and the best practices that we've developed and think about, okay, what does that mean for going into this new community? But again, that aspect of working within the community and going and talking to people doesn't change. I mean, we've considered going to church groups and telling them about what wow, we're doing. That's, it, now that's revolutionary. I love it. Yeah, yeah, because it's like word of mouth is so powerful within communities. You it have is. to find where those kind of organic leaders are. A pastor mm -hmm. in a community carries so much weight. How are we think being thoughtful about engaging with them so that we're building credibility within the neighborhood ourselves? Wow, that is that's truly thought provoking, actually, Leslie, to to really take you to that grassroots level like that is a strategy I know I personally have never heard about. And I, I'm absolutely loving uh, that you guys are doing that. And you're taking into consideration pastors and you're taking into consideration other civic leaders, right? That can yeah. help spread the word about what you guys are doing. And then they act almost as like a vouch safe of like, yes, you can trust working for this group of, of, of people. That's just outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I, like to shift the conversation to something that you talked about earlier in the program, and that is the shift away from cheaper offshore produced goods, right? Yes. And one of the things that you guys have done, uh, kind of one of your missions, right, is bolstering domestic manufacturing, right? I mean, you guys have made a conscious, again, intentional decision to manufacture here inside the states and, and kind of boost our production. Right. So mm -hmm. the, how's that working for you guys? What what a what made you make that call? Because that's not a lot of things that you hear. Right. It's always, oh, it's tech. Ship it offshore. 
right? Mm-hmm. So you're one of the first tech companies I've heard is that, yeah, nope, going to keep you here onshore. And, and how has that played out? How has that played out for like your brand, for your overall business? If you could kind of go into that for us. Yes. Yeah, so our, our current CEO, Scott Grabiel, he's a vet, mm-hmm. very patriotic, as we, as we all are. Love it. <laughs> and, love it. And we made the decision to stay onshore for a couple of reasons. One, okay. perovskites are so... We're not the only company working on it, but we believe that we're the company in the United States that's the farthest ahead in terms of commercializing it. Mm -hmm. So in terms of just thinking about business profit motive, right, we will Mm -hmm. have first mover advantage here if we Mm -hmm. are the first market and we say we are an American company. So it's good PR, but it's also good for a bottom line at the end of the day. Right. The third, right. The, the the wild card that really kind of cemented this decision okay. was the Inflation Reduction Act, because uh, okay. there are investment and production tax credits in there that make it so profitable for us to now stay in the United States. So we are lucky huh. that we are one of our investors is also our customer. So we have guaranteed offtake okay. for our profs guides and one of the production tax credits listed out in IRA is Uh giving us several cents back per watt for all of the output that we're all of the product that we're going to be selling. So now we're getting paid to sell our products in the United States and looking ahead as we think about, as we thinking about expansion, we Mm -hmm. will also be getting paid to and build up new facilities in the United States. So right. for those reasons alone, those three reasons alone, it makes the most sense for us to be in the United States. And I think certainly also as countries now shift to thinking about energy independence, what with what happened during the pandemic with all of right. those supply chain challenges, and then right. now the war in Ukraine, where Europe is now really struggling to think about producing its own energy, mm-hmm. the the tone of the conversation has really shifted. And now everybody is thinking about how to bolster its grid and where sources of renewable energy are coming from. And again, perovskites, because we can make solar so much more powerful, becomes really attractive. Sure. So we we see a path for us within the United States where we can really accelerate our path towards decarbonization because we can work again with terrestrial PV, with automotives, with buildings, with the space satellites. There's so many opportunities for us to help accelerate the United States transition. And frankly, like I think above all of this is like we really don't have that much time, right? <laughs> Climate change right, is really no. If, yeah. Down on us. yeah, it totally is. <laughs> yeah. So there's a time element of what we're working with as well. So for me, I, I, ju- I just think it makes it makes a really compelling story. Mm-hmm. And it's also really for the sake of all of our own goods that we stay here in the United States so that we can help be part of the solution. Yeah. Nice. I like that. And that's wow. What a compelling business case. That is absolutely amazing how you guys have. Yeah. Again, it's the intentionality in all of this that's just mind-boggling to me in all in in everything that you're saying and, and so thoughtfully put together in your strategies. This is absolutely um amazing. This is fantastic. But also as we kind of look towards the future, right? And and solar and all of these different alt utilities 
are really starting to gain a lot of conversation. Right. But thinking about the green economy in, and especially the green economy in job creation, how is Kalux working to drive both innovation and equality just in what you guys think the future growth of jobs could be in the green sector? Mm, that's a really good question. So one of the things that we've been actively thinking through mm-hmm. is how we make sure to how we how we make sure that we're investing into the whole value chain. So gotcha. I mentioned earlier that we're I'm very focused on systems thinking. And what Ira has done is it's really jump-started manufacturing in the United States. So you have all of these different companies that are saying, oh, we're building a second plant, we're going to build five more gigawatts here mm-hmm. in the United States, we're going to bring all of these jobs into our facilities, which is great and awesome, and also requires that the market and the supply chain partners are equally ready to, to provide for that, Right. Right. If we haven't had, if this is all brand new, which it, it really is, right? All of this is brand new to the United States. We're bringing all of this back. We're flexing this new muscle. We need to be very intentional about how we're building the capacity at various points along the value chain. Manufacturing is one piece of it. Tax equity partners is another piece of it. I think those two have been solved for, right? Investors investing right. into this, getting a big return. Manufacturers mm-hmm. are getting a big return. What's currently missing, I think, is bolstering the capacity of supply chain partners domestically to be able to provide and meet that renewed capacity output that people are now chasing after. And so for us, we're really starting to think critically about what does it mean for us to work work with some of our current supply chain partners to identify, hey, here are some clear gaps that we see and we would like the the treasury or the department of energy to really consider expanding these tax credits so that smaller mom and pop shops can qualify for them as well mm-hmm. even if you're not if you're, if you're supplying to a manufacturer you should get incentives as well That's because true. the reality is what we've been finding as even though we're we're building all of this up we are still such a small player in the market compared to some of the more established solar players mm-hmm. and because this is our first factory and we're really just running pilot this is really a pilot facility we're not going to be buying at the volume that some bigger companies might be buying at oh gotcha okay so then it's not that the do, it's not that there isn't domestic supply, right? The supply mm-hmm. is there. It's accessible. It's available. Mm-hmm. But it's not affordable for us to for us right now. Right. That's very true. So then how do we work with our partners and leverage our kind of made in America piece, right? Leverage, leverage our vision and then leverage our relationships with local community stakeholders and also our relationships with members of Congress on the Hill to really advocate for expanding these tax credits to ensure that everyone along the value chain is taken care of. This is really mm-hmm. what we're focused on right now, actually. We're, we're actively thinking about how we can better build up this supply chain supply chain value chain within the United States so that everybody can be a viable player. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. That is awesome. That is awesome. And I love, I mean, you just hear the inclusivity 
in everything that you guys do, right? And I, I absolutely love that. And I think it's great that you guys have taken this stance, like you said, of building it into your culture, ingraining it into your culture. And it's going to be fascinating to see where you guys uh, continue to go with all of this, right? But one of the things that I find interesting when you start talking about renewables is that is, you wouldn't think it, but it's kind of a polarizing conversation, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, I had a conversation the other day at work. I have an EV and another guy and I were talking about our, our, our different vehicles and our boss walks in and goes, yeah, but the uncomfortable truth is how expensive it is to produce uh, the energy for those things. And I'm just like, okay, I think there's some miscommunication going on here, right? But it was, it was, it was a stark contrast on how polarizing the conversation can be. Yeah. Right? yeah. So how, how do startups like yourselves, like Kalux, how do you guys work on bridging that divide? Right. I mean, it's, it's yet another layer of biasy. Yeah. That we're almost dealing with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. It, it really comes down to messaging. It's, mm-hmm. it's the way we talk about this at the end of the day. We're, we're lucky that we're here in California so that we can, we can be very like raw, raw. We're fighting climate change and right. this is okay. solar tech and this is great. If we were, if we're in Florida, for example, right, our main talking point would be we're creating jobs, we're revitalizing the local economy, mm-hmm. we are bringing these jobs back to the United States. We are made in America. Love it. And it's it really just comes down to who you're talking to, right? A lot. What we've been finding is that a lot of Republican lawmakers are very interested in this idea of tech neutrality. So they don't want to say, oh, we're, 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 we're favoring renewables. We're, we're, we're favoring fossil fuel companies. They, they want to say, we're just going to, we're going to go laissez faire and we're going to let the market do its thing. And we are technology neutral. We're, we're not going to be picking winners and losers here. Mm-hmm. And they say that because it's what their constituents are focused on. Mm-hmm. But there's been a lot, and, and especially since I know there has been a lot of kind of secret Republican lawmaker visits to solar power plants. Fascinating. To, because they, 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 they recognize that the market really has shifted in this mm-hmm. direction in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And I don't see kind of the national rhetoric changing anytime soon. Right. But right. renewable energy companies are becoming much more sophisticated in the way that we're talking about what we're doing. What And again, we're a small private company, so we can kind of do what we want right now. A lot <laughs> of publicly yep. traded companies are a little bit more cautious about their overall messaging, but then behind the scenes, they're doing really targeted lobbying work. So it's, it, it all comes down, yeah, it all comes down to perception and semantics at the end of the day. But I will say, I mean, I think that that aspect of consumer consciousness is a really important piece of it because I was just reading actually yesterday okay. that everyone everyone talks about, oh, well, lithium extraction for EVs is so yes. energy intensive. And that's, right. that's probably exactly what your boss was thinking about. Exactly. I, I Maybe two years ago, we were extracting like the, we were extracting like 7 million metric tons for 
EV and other kind of clean energy related right. technologies. We were extracting at the same time 15 billion for fossil fuels. Right. And that was kind of I mean, he was my boss and I was ready to move on to the topic of why we were all there. But the but, other thing I want to bring back is like, I was like, can you renew the oil that you just burnt in your car over here? Well, when they replaced the battery out of my car, they can recycle the lithium at 100 percent. Exactly. And exactly. make a brand new battery out of it that they can put in somebody mm-hmm. else's car. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's where this outdated data is coming into play. But that's absolutely fascinating. And I like I like kind of the, the underlying message. And again, I'm going to beat the intentionality horse here a little bit. You have to know the market you're in, right? It's not a one message fits all campaign, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Meet your constituents, meet your future buyers where they are and bring them on board that way. That is absolutely just fantastic to hear. But Leslie, I mean, I think we could talk about this for, for hours and we don't quite have that time, but kind of in closing, right? As you guys continue to grow and you're innovating and and you're looking at that five-year, that 10-year roadmap, kind of talk to us about challenges and opportunities that you kind of anticipate in the near future for your company and just the solar tech landscape at large, right? If maybe somebody's out there like, I've always wanted to innovate in this space or what the, we have so many inquiring minds out there. Talk to us mm-hmm. a little bit. What are some of the challenges, opportunities that you see right now in your sector? Mhm mhm I I think the last the last question in the conversation we were having is such a good segue into this question because I really do think that renewables have a messaging and PR problem mm-hmm. because it is true that all of these individual companies are laying down roots and building foundations for building all of these great companies everywhere and yet there is so much either misinformation or kind of unwillingness to accept the realities of what climate change is doing to all of us. And what I think is really important is that climate change is sort of, it's like a really cerebral thing because for working class people on the ground, they might experience it as air pollution or urban heat centers or food deserts. We're talking about climate change. So there's a little bit of disconnect there between what people experience and what politicians or media outlets are talking about. And even private sector companies and foundations and nonprofits. I mean, we all talk about things in what can be very academic or technical terms. This is really helpful at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I think the industry really needs to come together to think about I'll also beat on the intentionality horse. How, okay. more, how can we be more intentional in the way we're talking about yeah. this yeah. so that there isn't room for miscommunication or misperceptions? How are we really making this easy to grasp for everyday fellow working class people so that they say, oh, yeah, climate change. I totally get that. I totally get how that connects to my life. I understand that my air conditioning bills are going up and I'm spending more on gas. And how do we make, how do we really just make this more accessible and available to everyone? I think it's something that is going to necessitate, I think, broad coalitions of private sector players coming together and saying we're technically competitors, 
But the goal that we're striving for at the end of the day is a shared one. And we need to work together where possible to make sure that we are shaping the market to be ready to adopt all of this new technology. At the end of the day, I mean, all of these manufacturers are committing to multi-gigawatt expansions. It's not going to be any use if the market isn't ready for it. Mm -hmm. There's not going to be any off takers if we're not going to be able to work with the grid. And I think there's also the uncomfortable reality that like, we're going to have to work with the utilities. That's like a big elephant in the room sometimes. Right. We're going to have to work with them. We cannot alienate all of these potential partners just because we're trying to take this moralistic high ground. So it's going to involve a lot of compromising and it's going to involve a lot of, I think, eating a slice of humble pie and recognizing that we have this amazing technology, but we can't do it without others. And we really have to do it with others if we want to go far. Yeah. Wow. That is something else. And I love that you you, you are going to have to work with the big utilities. I mean, they own the distribution lines, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that it's their networks. So exactly. I think that, that's great. Well, Leslie, I mean, this has just been fantastic. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. I know it's been eye-opening for me to have this conversation with you. I hope that you guys out there listening to this podcast have been taking notes because this has been some great stuff today. And to our listeners, make sure to contact connect with us on LinkedIn at Adam A. Moore. And then our guest today is at Leslie Chang 93. And if you enjoyed today's episode, Make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are streaming our show from. Check out our previous shows and stay tuned for next time. Talk to you all then. Thank you for listening to Breaking Barriers, Building a Higher Ground. We are grateful for the time you spend with us in participating in these conversations. Please review and rate and share our show as we are focused on growing awareness in the supply chain inclusion and supplier diversity space. If you'd like more information, please visit us at higherground.io. That's H-I-R-E ground dot I-O. Thank you for being here and we look forward to seeing you next week.